is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, a legendary jazz recording that changed American music history took place in New York City. Here's Jesse with the rest of the story. You're listening to the 1938 Benny Goodman Carnegie Hall Jazz Concert recorded this day in history in 1938. This instrumental track called Don't Be That Way was the opening of the set. Benny Goodman was an American jazz and swing musician, clarinetist, and bandleader known as the King of Swing. In the mid-1930s, Goodman led one of the most popular musical groups in America. His concert at Carnegie Hall in New York City on January 16, 1938 is described as the single most important jazz or pop concert in history, like the Jazz Coming Out Party to the world of respectable music. Goodman's bands launched the careers of many major jazz artists during an era of racial segregation. He led one of the first well-known integrated jazz groups. Goodman performed nearly to the end of his life while exploring an interest in classical music. This legendary jazz concert by Benny Goodman is a two-disc LP of swing music first issued in 1950. Here's Benny Goodman on that 1950 release talking about the performance and the recording. You know, we didn't know the concert was being recorded at the time. We didn't find it out until afterwards. Two copies were made, one for me and one for the Library of Congress. I put mine away so carefully, I completely lost track of it for about 12 years. And then luckily, one of my daughters found it in the closet about a year ago. We had it edited, and Columbia put it out on records. And, of course, here you have the results. But let me tell you a little about it. That January 16th back in 1938 was a Sunday and a cold one. We didn't quite know what would happen, how we would sound, what the audience would think of us. Until they got there, we didn't even know how many people would be on hand. So we just went out and played. Our first number was Don't Be That Way, and you can hear the audience response in the record. That really made us feel good. The legend holds that the idea to present the Goodman Band in concert at Carnegie Hall began as a publicity stunt by Goodman's publicist. Certainly the idea of playing jazz at Carnegie was revolutionary because at the time, Carnegie Hall was a bastion of musical propriety. Or as jazz critic John McDonough put it, quote, An important house of old world traditions was snobby smirks toward American culture and a way of making status-sensitive Yankees feel like babbits for comparing Gershwin to Wagner or Tatum to Horowitz. Benny Goodman was initially hesitant about the concert, fearing that hot jazz would fall flat before audiences accustomed to classical music. Hollywood Hotel, Benny's most recent film at the time, opened to rave reviews. The giant lines of teenagers waiting outside Paramount gave Benny the confidence to actively pursue the Carnegie Hall concert with all his faculties. He canceled recording dates and insisted on holding rehearsals inside Carnegie Hall to familiarize the band with the special acoustics. The concert was held on the evening of January 16, 1938. It sold out weeks in advance with a capacity of 2,760 seats going for the top price of $2.75 a seat, a very high price at the time. The initial reaction of the audience, though polite, was a bit tepid. As the concert went on, things livened up. By the time the band got to the climactic piece, Sing 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 with a Swing... Success was assured. At this 
time in American history, recording technology was still in a fairly primitive state. Only three RCA 44BX microphones were used, one above the conductor's podium, and two others at ends of the band. The feed went off stage to a mixer, and then to a CBS truck in the alley. The engineers on site didn't control the sound mix, so the settings were the same for each song. There was no attempt to bring out individual soloists or to make adjustments appropriate to the unique nature of each song. From the truck, the feed was then sent by a broadcast-quality telephone line to the CBS Master Control Room downtown, who then patched it to a recording studio. There, the records were cut, but each was limited to 8 minutes, 45 seconds. In order to capture the entire live concert, two record-cutting turntables had to be set side-by-side and used in relay. After the Goodman Band and Quartet took over the stage and performed the instrumental numbers that had made them famous, the vocal by Martha Tilton on Locke Lohman provoked five curtain calls and cries for an encore. Oh, you take the high road and I'll take the low road, but I'll be in Scotland for you. Oh, me and my true love may never meet again on the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond. By yon bonny banks and by yon bonny where the sun shines bright on Loch Lomond Where me and my true love forever want to gain On the bonny, bonny banks of Loch The encore forced Goodman to make his only audience announcement for the night, stating that they had no encore prepared, but that Martha would return shortly with another song. Sorry, we're not prepared for any encore, but we'll bring Martha back a little later. This 1938 concert is regarded as one of the most significant in jazz history. After years of work by musicians from all over the country, jazz had finally been accepted by mainstream audiences. Maybe now you have an idea of what our Carnegie Hall jazz concert was like. At least I think you should. We played a few of the numbers on the records to give you a cross-section. Tried to give you an idea of the feeling we had, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that as always, Jesse. And by the way, that brings us to the Sinatra hour we did, where Sinatra talked about Benny Goodman and his importance. And Miles Davis, because that's a terrific hour as well. And we love to talk about and dig down deep into music of all all kinds, crossing across, well, every variety, from classical, Rostropovich, straight through to our Billy Joel segment, Robert Plant, and Merle Haggard, my favorite. The hour we did on Merle was just so good. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. This day in history, in 1938, Benny Goodman played Carnegie Hall.
And we continue with our American stories. And we love to tell stories about businesses here on our show because without businesses, and particularly small businesses, well, where do people work? And where do local governments get their money to pay for people like teachers and everybody else? And today we have the story of Madam C.J. Walker. And many believe she was the first self-made female millionaire. She also happens to be an African-American woman. And she was certainly the pioneer of the modern hair care industry. Today we have Alelia Bundles telling us the story. She was the first child in her family born free in December of 1867. They lived in an area that had been devastated by the Civil War. Everything, the plantations had been burned down, and now the formerly enslaved people were struggling to just live a life, and they had very little money. There, at the end of every season, they owed money to the plantation owners who had been their former slave owners. Madam C.J. Walker is my great-great-grandmother, and I grew up in a household where both of my parents were in the hair care business. My mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, which had been founded in 1906 by her great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker. So that was really my first introduction to the story of these amazing women in my family. And then years later, I really began to understand the importance and the impact of Madam C.J. Walker. But she started life as Sarah Breedlove on the same plantation in Delta, Louisiana, where her parents had been enslaved. And Sarah Breedlove, uh, as the young child in her family, it was, didn't have much opportunity for education. And then when she was seven years old, both of her parents died. She uh, had to move in with her older sister, Luvenia, and Luvenia was married to a man who was so cruel, as Sarah later said, that she, uh, she got married at 14 to get a home of her own. She married a man named Moses McWilliams. Very little is known about her first husband, Moses McWilliams, but they had one daughter named Alelia when Sarah was 17, and when Sarah was 20, Moses died. So now Sarah Breedlove McWilliams was a widow. She knew she wasn't going to move back in with her sister and brother-in-law, so she moved up the Mississippi River to St. Louis, where her older brothers had moved about a decade earlier uh, as part of a, an exodus. So the, sort of the, we hear about caravans now with people from Central America in the 1870s and 1880s. African-Americans, formerly enslaved people, just left Louisiana and Mississippi because the conditions were so horrible. There was so much racial violence, and they, her brothers had moved to St. Louis to escape that treatment. So she joined her brothers in St. Louis. They had become barbers, and they were doing relatively well. They had a barber shop very near St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. And Sarah joined the church. It was really the women of the church who began to give her a vision of herself as something other than an illiterate washerwoman. And that is when her life began to change. Sarah Breedlove arrived in St. Louis in around 1888. And now she was Sarah Breedlove McWilliams with a little girl who was about two years old. She had had very little formal education. 
There weren't schools for black children in Louisiana, even though her family minister, Curtis Pollard, had been a black state senator during Reconstruction when African-Americans had gained a great deal of political power. That power was taken away from them by the Ku Klux Klan so that by the time Sarah was old enough to go to school, there were no schools for black children. So now she's in St. Louis. She knows how to pick cotton. She knows how to wash clothes. She knows how to do domestic work. And she's struggling to raise her daughter. And life is just very difficult, even though her brothers are trying to help her and the women of the church are trying to help her. She doesn't really have enough money to make ends meet. But the women of the church really encourage her to make sure that her daughter is educated. So during the week, she is having to work away from home, having to live in as a domestic. She leaves her daughter at what was called the Colored Orphans Home. There were a number of black women who had organized because they knew there were families who were struggling. There was no daycare in the way that we think about it now. So her daughter Lelia spent uh, part of the week at the Collard Orphans Home. She went to kindergarten with the other children from the school. And then on the weekends or whenever Sarah could be with her, she helped to raise her daughter. They went to church every Sunday at St. Paul AME Church. And even though Sarah was struggling, she had a good enough voice that she was in the choir. Being in the choir allowed her to meet some of the more middle-class women, to travel around the city when the choir performed. And so she was being exposed to a way of life that made her aspire to something better. So time went on, and in 1894, a couple of her brothers had died, and so now her support system, her emotional and financial support system was really crumbling. And she met a man named John Davis. She married John Davis. She thought that that would be helpful to her, that she would be helpful in raising her daughter. And, and that turned out to be a disaster. So they ended up splitting up. But around this time, she was under so much stress and she was having so many problems uh, that she her hair began to fall out. And she said, I was so ashamed of my frightful appearance that I prayed to the Lord for a solution. And one night in a dream, a big African man appeared and he told me what to mix up for my uh, formula. And some of the ingredients came from Africa. I sent for them, I mixed them together. I applied them to my scalp and my hair began to grow back faster than it had ever fallen out. And so I think there is, that is part of the truth. Um, it's also true that, uh, that she sold products for a while for a woman who became her competitor, a woman named Annie Malone. It's also true that she worked for a while as a cook for, after she moved to Denver, for a man named E.L. Schultz, who owned the largest pharmacy west of the Mississippi River. And he was well aware of products that were already on the market, like Cuticura and formulas that pharmacists had been using and the medical profession had been using really for hundreds of years. A basic formula that was uh, cleaning your hair more often with a shampoo and then an ointment that contained sulfur. And sulfur is a centuries old remedy for healing dandruff and scalp infections. So that was really the combination of Sarah's dreams, Sarah selling other products, other products already being on the market and coming up with her own formula. But I think one thing that is really important for us to understand in you know this era, in the 21st century, is that in 1906, when Sarah Breedlove McWilliams, who was to become Madam Walker, started her company and developed her formula, most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing. 
And that meant people didn't bathe very often, <laughs> which we don't like to think about. But, you know, people would have to go outside and pump, pump water at the well by hand, put it in a bucket, heat it on the, a wood stove or on an open fire, get the water hot enough to fill a big, large tin tub and take a bath. And that might happen once a week. And everybody in the family might use the same bath water. So it's really gross. But as you can see, this would not, you know, bathing was not the sort of luxury thing that we think about now. So most people didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't bathe very often. They washed their hair even less often. And Sarah was one of those women. And there were many women like her because they weren't washing their hair very often. They had really horrible scalp infections. And as a result, they were going bald. So that was really Sarah's uh, real, real problem is that she was going bald and she wanted to figure out a way to have healthier hair. She moved to Denver in uh, 1905 and her good friend, Charles Joseph Walker, whom she had met in St. Louis, who was a newspaper man, moved to Denver. And they got married in January of 1906. And she began to take out ads in the newspaper. All of a sudden, instead of being Sarah McWilliams in her ads in the black newspaper in Denver, now she was Mrs. C.J. Walker. And then in April of 1906, she began to call herself Madam C.J. Walker. And you can think, well, that's a bit of an affectation, uh, but it was really a nod to the fact that Paris, uh, where people were called Madam rather than Mrs., Paris was the center of fashion and beauty culture. And she, like women who were her contemporaries, Elizabeth Arden, Helena Rubinstein, they all called themselves Madam. So it was really kind of a business honorific, as well as a way to, uh, to have some respect and some dignity. And when we come back, we'll continue with the remarkable story of Madam C.J. Walker, as told beautifully by her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. More on the Walker story after these messages. We continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker here on Our American Stories. And she's the woman who started the modern hair care industry. Her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles, has been telling us her story. And we pick up where we last left off. You know, so she begins to sell her products. You know, her hair is now growing longer. And other women who had scalp infections like she did are wondering, Sarah, what have you done? How come your hair is growing? And she and her new husband traveled around Colorado to the various mining towns, to Trinidad, to Pueblo, to Colorado Springs. And even though Colorado had a really small black population, and that was her target audience, there were um, you know, black residents in all of these towns because people had gone, just like other Americans, to 
try to be part of the gold rush, to try to be part of the silver rush, to do the mining in Colorado. So Sarah was selling her products and, you know, traveling around. And it really became clear to her that she could only grow her market so much in a state where there were very few black residents. So she and Charles Joseph Walker began to travel around the southwestern part of the United States and the South. They went to Texas, to Kansas, to Oklahoma, Mississippi, Louisiana. So every town she would go to, she would demonstrate the products. She would find a woman in town who seemed to have a scalp infection and that she would hire a room in a church and get the water heated and wash the woman's hair and then show just what her products could do. And then she was always very good about picking out the women who seemed to have the most personality and who might be leaders in their church, who might be with their missionary society or with their choir. She had a really great knack for finding women who were leaders. And she would pick that women, woman to be her sales agent so that when she left the town, she would leave a supply of products with that person and then she would stay in touch. And then as the woman began to develop a customer base, she would order more products from Sarah. She had asked her daughter to move to Denver so that she would have somebody who was mixing up the products as she and her husband were traveling around. And so they continued for about a year and a half, um, going to as many towns as possible. She was very smart about advertising. She'd take out a little ad in whatever black newspaper for the town where she was going the next week so that she would have a crowd. She knew how to develop a crowd and how to create buzz. So after about a year and a half, she needed to find a new base, and she had been along the East Coast by now, and she decided to settle in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh seemed, she must have met somebody there. She always connected with the African Methodist Episcopal Church congregation. She would find a friend who would let her stay. You know, somebody would write a letter and she would be able to stay with the minister or the doctor, black doctors, because most hotels were not open to, um, you know, black clientele at that point because of the horrible Jim Crow segregation. But she settled in Pittsburgh and she had her daughter come from Denver to Pittsburgh. Now she and her husband, Charles Joseph Walker, and her daughter are living there. They open the first beauty school called Lelia College, which she named after her daughter. And then they began to train even more women. She continued traveling in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And in 1909, she visited Indianapolis. And she was really looking for a new base. And she was very impressed with Indianapolis. When she got there, she noticed that there was a very thriving black business community. There were three black newspapers, including uh, one that was a nationally distributed newspaper called the Indianapolis Freeman. So this Indianapolis Freeman was uh, something Madam Walker immediately recognized as a great place to advertise. She took out an ad and she used before and after photographs. The before picture she put in the center and her hair was very short, and this was when her hair had been falling out. And then on either side in a sort of trio of pictures, she had a front view and a side view, and her hair was long and her hair was down to the middle of her back and very healthy. And it was kind of like a Jenny Craig commercial. I mean, you could really see the, you know, the impact that her products really worked. And in that, uh, in this ad, she took the, a, a third of the page from top to bottom, placed the pictures at the top, 
And then the ad included letters that were testimonials from women who both were her customers and women who were her sales agents. And one woman wrote her a letter and she said, before I started using Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower, my hair was an eighth of an inch long. And now my hair is down my back and I have been able to throw my wig away. So this was real, you know, you know, real endorsement uh, that said the products worked. But there were also letters from women who had become her sales agents. And one woman said, you have made it possible for a black woman to make more money in a day selling your products than she could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. This was huge because there was so much discrimination against, you know, women in general working outside the home, but especially women of color, that the only jobs that they could be hired for were maids and cooks and laundresses and sharecroppers. So for a woman to be able to make her own money, her own independent money, meant she didn't have to go work in somebody else's house, live in somebody else's house, and leave her children at home. She could have her own business in her house, uh, doing hair or selling products. And so these, so Madam Walker always was pushing not just the products and you can feel beautiful at a time when very few people were telling black women they were beautiful. She always pushed financial and economic independence and empowerment. So these ads were very powerful. Added to that, one of the reasons she had picked Indianapolis is because it was a transportation hub. It was called the Crossroads of America, and that was because of all of the trains that went through Indianapolis every day. At that point in 1910, it was near the center of population in America. The Western United States was still pretty sparsely populated. California was not the powerhouse that we think of it now with a large population. So Indiana really had quite a bit of uh, train traffic. And because the trains were going through town, that meant that it was a great place for her to do business with her mail order business. It also meant that the black men who worked on the trains, the Pullman porters, who were traveling from coast to coast, could take papers, copies of the Indianapolis Freeman, and sell those papers as they traveled around. So Madam Walker placed her ad in the Indianapolis Freeman, knowing that these black Pullman porters would pick up stacks of those papers as they came through town. And if they were going to San Francisco or Boston or Detroit or Atlanta or New York or Chicago, her ads were going to be seen by people. She really was a marketing uh, and distribution genius. By training thousands of women to be her sales agents, she developed a workforce, an army of women who were selling her products. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker. And again, it's being told so beautifully by her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. And what's most striking is it's almost a history lesson of a sort, too. And that's what we try to do here with so many of our stories. And we're looking for your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we were talking, and this could easily be one of our American Dreamers stories, too. In fact, we should make it so. Because free enterprise has been the way out for so many people in this great country and a way forward and a way to improve, well, improve our own lives, our own families' lives. So when we come back, 
We'll continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker, the first self-made female millionaire, her story, and in a way, her great-great-granddaughter's story, too, because you can tell here that the great-great-granddaughter has just tremendous affection for carrying on this remarkable family story. Madam C.J. Walker's story continues here on Our American Story. to hear the last segment of the story of Madam C.J. Walker, the pioneer of the women's hair care industry and the first woman to become a self-made millionaire in this country. Her success came from her great product and her amazing ability to advertise and market. Let's get back to the story. She traveled most of the year going from town to town doing lectures one of the things that I, one, one story I remember from her secretary, she had a secretary who came to work for her in 1914 when she was still a teenager. And when I was growing up and really starting to do my research, Violet Reynolds was still working for the Walker Company. One story that her, her secretary, Violet Reynolds, told me, so Madam Walker had very little formal education, but she was a self-educated woman. She hired um, a woman named Alice Kelly, who was the dean of girls at a school called Eckstein Norton, a black school in Kentucky. And she had great leadership skills, but she hired Alice Kelly to be the manager of her factory, but she also really hired her as a personal tutor. But she was always improving. She really believed in lifelong learning so that when she was in and whenever she was in Indianapolis, because she was traveling so much, but on those days when she was in, in, in Indianapolis, she would gather the young ladies who worked in her office and have a meeting with them and talk to them about her travels and tell stories. But she also would read the newspaper with them. They would read the newspaper together. And some of the girls had some education, some had more than others, but everybody wanted to learn. And if somebody in reading the newspaper discovered a word they didn't know, she would have them look it up together in the dictionary. And she said, there's no shame in not knowing. We all should be trying to improve ourselves. So 1910, when Madam Walker moves to Indianapolis, she's just really just on the cusp of breaking out. She's still, you know, making a few thousand dollars a year, which is more money than most, you know, even white businessmen in, in America are making at the time. But she's just really poised to become nationally known. And shortly after she moves to Indianapolis, there is a big push to build a new YMCA in the black community. Her, she has become, Madam Walker becomes friends with George Knox, the publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, the paper that has done so much to improve her uh, advertisements and to raise her profile. 
George Knox is the chairman of the board of the Black YMCA. And Madam Walker is very impressed with what he does. And shortly after Madam Walker arrives in Indianapolis, this big push to build a YMCA is led by George Knox. He invites Jesse Moreland, one of the first black secretaries of the YMCA, to come to Indianapolis to do what he has done in many other cities, which is to uh, hold a big rally to raise money. Uh, and he has persuaded Julius Rosenwald, the uh, president of Sears Roebuck, to pledge $25,000 to any city in America where the black and white communities will work together to raise the balance of $75,000 to build a $100,000 building. So Jesse Moreland comes to Indianapolis and holds a rally, brings together the leadership of the Black YMCA and the leadership of the White YMCA and some of the wealthy white businessmen uh, who are at Eli Lilly and at the Indianapolis 500 Speedway racetrack stand up during the rally and they pledge $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 to this effort to build this YMCA. Now, understanding that YMCAs are still racially segregated in 1910, but this was going to be something that would help the black community. So Madam Walker, to everyone's surprise, stood up and said, I pledge $1,000. And I'm doing this because I believe if I help our boys, it will help our girls. And that is what I am interested in. Now, people were stunned. No black woman had ever contributed that amount of money to that kind of secular cause. And she began to be written about in newspapers, not just black newspapers, but white newspapers. People wanted to know the secret to her success. And they were writing about not just her business, but they were writing about her philanthropy. And eventually the, the YMCA was built. But Madam Walker, in the meantime, realized that people wanted to hear her story. And so her crowds began to get larger. She traveled from town to town to sell her products. And she decided during the summer of 1912 that she wanted to attend the National Negro Business League Convention. That organization had been founded by Booker T. Washington who was the most powerful black man in America. He had had dinner at the White House with Theodore Roosevelt. That was quite controversial because segregation was still a very much a part of the ethos of America. Madam Walker arrived at the 1912 National Negro Business League Convention uh, and sent word to Booker T. Washington that she wished to tell her story. She wanted to be included on the program. And she had met Booker T. Washington before, but he had been relatively dismissive of her. He had pretty much ignored her. But she was not a woman who wanted to be ignored. So on the first day of the convention, she asked politely about speaking, and he overlooked her. And on the second day of the convention, her good friend George Knox, the publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, stood up and said, we should hear from Madam C.J. Walker. She is the woman who gave $1,000 to the building fund of the YMCA in my hometown of Indianapolis. She has an incredible story to tell. And even though Knox was a longtime member of the National Negro Business League and a good friend of Booker T. Washington's, he dismissed George Knox. And Booker T. Washington said, you know, we're discussing lifetime membership. But rather than call on somebody to discuss lifetime membership, he called upon 
one of Madam Walker's neighbors from Indianapolis, a man named H.L. Saunders. And Mr. Saunders proceeded to talk about his business. Now, he was very successful, and his business was now a regional business with customers in Indiana and the four surrounding states. At this point, Madam Walker, just six years after she had started the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, had customers all over the United States, the Caribbean, and Central America. As it turns out, Mr. Saunders had been the treasurer for the fundraising campaign for the YMCA. Uh, And he had given the very generous sum of $250. But Madam Walker, of course, had given four times as much, $1,000. Now, I know she was a good church-going woman and she knew that you weren't supposed to compare what you put into the collection basket to what others put in. However, I can't help but imagine that she felt at least a twinge of resentment. And on the third and final day of the conference, as the last banker was completing his report, she stood at her seat, looked toward Booker T. Washington at the podium and said, surely you are not going to shut the door in my face. I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the washed up. From there, I was promoted to the kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself. I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. And I have built my own factory on my own ground. The next year, he invited her back as a keynote speaker. So Madam Walker was a person who had worked hard all her life. And she said, when she was a washerwoman, she said, when I was, when I was a washerwoman, I was an excellent washerwoman. I, I took pride in my work. I always took pride in my work, and I always knew that hard work was important. But when people would ask her the secret to her success, she would say to them, there is no royal, flower-strewn path to success. And if there is, I have not found it. For whatever success I have attained has been the result of much hard work and many sleepless nights. I got my start by giving myself a start. So don't sit down and wait for the opportunities to come. You have to get up and make them for yourself. She became very wealthy and it was really an American rags to riches story. She had been born on a plantation in Delta, Louisiana, one of the poorest areas in America, an area that had been devastated during the Civil War. And she was on a cotton plantation making no money. So an orphaned at an, a very early age, very little education. And yet by the time she died in May of 1919, she was living in a mansion in one of the wealthiest communities in America, just a few miles away from John D. Rockefeller. She had, during those 51 years, gone from an uneducated washerwoman to a millionaire. And great job on that, Faith, and thanks again to Alelia Bundles for narrating and telling this remarkable story of her great-great-grandmother, and that's Madam C.J. Walker. And what a story that was, her donation to the YMCA. It just... 
That $1,000, what it meant to her, what it meant to her life to be able to be a woman and an African-American woman and do that. I got my start by giving myself a start. And whatever success I've had has been the result of much hard work and many sleepless nights. And no finer words can be said about anyone who wants to go down the road of entrepreneurship and cutting your own path. And what a terrific story. Again, send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org about your people, your family, somebody in your family like Madam C.J. Walker. This is Our American Stories, Madam C.J. Walker's story, and her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Rule of Law series with our own Alex Cortez bringing us an unusual story today. It's about baseball and about a player that you likely haven't heard of named Kurt Flood. We grew up in Oakland in the Bay Area, we should say, really, with Frank Robinson. Robinson, the right-hand batter. And Ricky Henderson. Joe DiMaggio. When all kinds of great baseball players came out of the, the rich baseball culture of the San Francisco Oakland Bay Area. You're listening to the voice of political columnist George Will, whom you may not know is perhaps even more passionate about his baseball writing. Kirk Flood grew up in the 40s and 50s. And in the 50s, he became a minor league player, largely in the South, which is where most minor league teams were, because most major league teams were in the North. And he experienced the desegregated South. This was the South before the public accommodation section of the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed. He would travel with his teammates on the team bus. They would go in the front door of the restaurant to get food, he would be handed food out the back door. He would believe himself on the side of the road because he couldn't use the restrooms. And one day after a game, the players threw their uniforms in a pile and the equipment manager took a broomstick, picked up floods with it and sent it to a black dry cleaner for them to clean it. Kurt also saw white and colored water fountains for the first time and assumed that the colored one perhaps had ginger ale in it. All of this he had never experienced before growing up in the West. He, he didn't, but you learn awfully fast. The Cardinals that he joined happened to have three other particularly fierce African Americans who'd also experienced this and nursed an understandable grudge about it. One was Bill White, first baseman who went on to be president of the National League, and two others went on to be Hall of Famers, Bob Gibson, the pitcher from Omaha, Nebraska, and Lou Brock from I can't remember where. But anyway, they'd all experienced this in the South, and they all played with a particular intensity, unquestionably in part because of the fires that had been stoked within them by the injustice they experienced. 
and Kurt would add that the injustice wasn't limited to the South. When the then World Series hero tried to rent a particular house in San Francisco, the owner threatened to hold it hostage at gunpoint before letting a black man move in. And rather than find another house, Kurt sued him. I think that the notoriety that's undoubtedly going to be involved here will make people aware, if nothing else, that that prejudice is is not only confined to the southern part of our United States, and if they if they move their mustache and look under their nose, that they find it right here at home too. Kurt Flood was for many many seasons a premier outfielder. Most of the years with the St. Louis Cardinals. Batting second and playing center field, number 21, Kurt Flood. He was awarded a gold glove that's given by Major League Baseball to the person considered the premier defensive player at that particular position. Now to be a gold glove center fielder is not chopped liver. That is a big deal in baseball. I did play in three World Series and I won the Golden Glove Award seven times, and that is not easy when you play the same position as Willie Mays. <laughs> I hope they remember some of the some of the great things, the great times that that uh, that we had. Well, many haven't, or that he was a three-time All-Star, batted over 300 in six seasons, and once went a whole season without a single error. Instead. Many remember this. Late in his career with the Cardinals, what turned out to be late in his career with the Cardinals, they decided to trade him to Philadelphia. And he said, uh, no, actually, I don't want to go to Philadelphia. Kurt had been in the city of St. Louis with the Cardinals for 10 seasons and liked it there. Philadelphia was an awful team and known for its racism. And I'm going to challenge the reserve clause, which had been integral to baseball since time immemorial. All it said was that once you signed with a team, you were that team's property until they decided to trade you or release you, and there was no third option. Here's one of Kurt Flood's lawyers, Arthur Goldberg. He's owned by the team that first employed him or the team to which that team sells him. Kurt Flood said there's something wrong with this because it denies to a category of Americans, of whom I am a part, the basic, what should be the basic American right to negotiate the terms of employment with the employer of your choice. Should one person be able to own another person for his entire life? Well, Abraham Lincoln solved that problem for us, didn't he? Kurt Flood says the present system makes baseball players slaves. You're a man who makes $90,000 a year, which isn't exactly slave wages. What's your retort to that? Uh, a well-paid slave is nonetheless a slave. He said, I won't go to Philadelphia. Interrupted a lucrative career at the peak of his prowess. Foregoing Philadelphia's offer to pay him $100,000, $680,000 in today's dollars. Money that the high spending player desperately needed to pay his ex wife child support. 
He was such a good center fielder, which means he played the biggest part of the outfield, which means as you grow old, your capacity declines, so he was taking a risk with the perishable asset of baseball talent. You seem to think that there are things more important than money, obviously. I pride myself for several things, of which one is integrity. Me as a human being, I must stand up for that principle alone. Anyway, uh, he challenged the reserve clause. In court. And when we come back, you'll hear the rest of this story, Kurt Flood's story, the Rule of Law series here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, we return to Kurt Flood and his story of challenging baseball's reserve clause, which made a player his owner's property for as long as they wanted. I knew that, it, that the reserve clause in my contract was illegal, and I thought that I was the one to make the difference in, in our contracts. Legally, a contract must have a beginning and an end. But the reserve clause perpetuated this year after year, even though you only had a one-year contract. That clause in your contract perpetuated it until you died. As a matter of fact, if they resurrected Babe Ruth, the Yankees would still own him. Uh, that's how ironclad that clause in the contract was. I spoke with Marvin Miller, who was the executive director of the Players Association at the time. And he said, Kurt, I want you to go back to California and I want you to think about what you're getting, ready, what you're getting yourself in for because this is going to be a, a fight to the finish if, if, in fact, that's what you want. And I guess there's so, something about suing the kind of people that own baseball teams that that's kind of frightening. These are really powerful men. Not only do they own baseball teams, but they, they own everything else in this hemisphere. His owner with the Cardinals was Gussie Bush, the Bush of Bush beer. Here's what Marvin Miller told him. You will never have another job in baseball again, ever. You understand that, don't you, Kurt? It almost didn't matter what I said. I realized that this is really a man of principle here. After Marvin spent most of the time trying to convince him what a mistake he was making personally, concluded it by saying, you're the answer to a maiden's prayer. You're the guy I've been looking for. This is Kurt Flood, baseball's Bolshevik. He was public enemy number one. Baseball owners say the move could spell disaster. There's no question about it. It's the worst thing that has ever happened to baseball. I also thought they're going to crush him. On May 19, 1970, Kurt Flood testified in the U.S. District Court of New York. His former Cardinals teammates happened to be playing in New York that day, but not a single one of them appeared at the courthouse to support him. In fact, not a single current MLB player made an appearance 
including fellow black players like Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Frank Robinson, all were afraid of their owners. Only former players showed up, and among which was Kurt's hero, whose jersey number he adopted when he was in the minor leagues, and who had taken a stand of his own. 1944 in Fort Hood, Texas. This was 11 years before Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus in Montgomery, thereby kicking off the Montgomery bus boycott and igniting the career of Martin Luther King. Uh, in 1944, Lieutenant Jackie Robinson refused to go to the back of an army bus in segregated Texas, was court-martialed but vindicated. So baseball has been very important to the establishment of rights, not just racial rights, but rights. Jackie approached Kurt at the plaintiff's table and whispered in his ear, keep your head up, you're doing the right thing. And Kurt started crying. The presiding judge, though, disagreed and ruled against him, but undeterred. Flood appealed it to the Second Circuit, lost again, and appealed it a final time to the U.S. Supreme Court. Continuing the case came at a great personal cost. It complicated his lawyer's recommendation that he file bankruptcy to deal with his mounting personal debt. Filing bankruptcy would have given the bankruptcy trustee the power to resolve all litigation, which would have included the baseball case. Kurt's choice not to do that says to me, I'm not going to settle this case. Not to make all my financial problems go away. I gave my word. I'm going to see it through. And he did. The Supreme Court agreed today to hear arguments that professional baseball is a business which must be subject to the antitrust laws. The case not only challenged the Reserve Clause's potential illegality of being a never-ending contract similar to slavery in Flood's view, but it also challenged baseball's exemption from antitrust laws that would otherwise prevent a monopoly like Major League Baseball from mandating that every single team have these clauses and for all to blackball Kurt from exploring the market free agency. Here's Kurt's wife, Judy Pace. Kurt would say, we have been subsidizing the owners. We just can't even go out and find out what am I really valued at? What do I need to be paid if I'm getting seven consecutive gold gloves? What is my value? We thought getting $20,000 a year was a fair share. Because of baseball's monopoly status, that's all that players like Flood could imagine. A status they were challenging that was granted to baseball by that very court. In a 1922 ruling written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. In a suit arising from a conflict between the major leagues and the federal league, which should grown up to challenge the major leagues. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, well, baseball is not a business in interstate commerce. He declared that the business is giving exhibitions of baseball, which are 
purely state affairs. And that baseball is something above the reproach of business. It is a sport. Which is preposterous. As uh, the great sports writer Jim Murray of the Los Angeles Times once said, if baseball is not a business, then Microsoft or General Motors is a sport. And if baseball, a business where two teams from two different states play each other and where fans from multiple states buy tickets isn't interstate commerce, how could what a farmer named Roscoe Filburn did possibly be? Roscoe Filburn was the Ohio farmer who raised grain on his farm for use on his farm. It would never enter interstate commerce. He'd use it to feed his chickens and, and other animals. The Supreme Court said, no, doesn't matter. You have exceeded your quota under the federal agricultural quota system. A Depression-era law that thought the government would know how to run farms. Because just by growing the wheat and using it on your farm, it means you didn't go into the interstate market to buy your feed for your animals, and therefore you have affected interstate commerce. Therefore, the federal government can pretty much regulate anything it wants by claiming a significant effect on interstate commerce. But we stray from baseball into constitutional law. Yes, we do, George. Perhaps unexpectedly so, but also quite positively. Our courts may not always get things right, as we saw with Philburn's case, but at least we have courts. We have a rule of law where laws that we collectively pass rule the day. Or at least we attempt to have them rule the day. It can be a sticky process, and the courts can be wrong, and the passage of time confirms that they're often wrong. But we know that we can work it out in a publicly agreed-upon process. You know, it's sometimes said that Americans don't do political philosophy because we've never created the equivalent of Locke's Second Treatise on Government or Hobbes' Leviathan. Actually, Americans do political philosophy all the time. They just do it in court cases. That Kurt Flood or Roscoe Filburn are able to sue the powers that be is a remarkable reality, especially in the context of thousands of years of human history where they couldn't. And even today, there are no such things called courts or laws in countries like China, North Korea, Cuba, and Russia, at least not real ones. In such places, the rule of the day is not the rule of law, but the rule of the ruler. Anyway, he lost. In part because, in large part because, Oliver Wendell Holmes had a singularly bad day. And a good bit of his career perished with his legal case. In 1976, there was a challenge mounted to the reserve clause. It was submitted to an arbiter. The arbiter says, yeah, the reserve clause is uh, illegal. And baseball changed instantly. Free agency was now a possibility by players. They could shop around for a team the same way the rest of us do. We're finding our work and everything else in our lives. And boy, as George Will write, it would have an impact. That story, after the break. Kurt Flood's story, here on Our American Stories. 
is Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week in print and in audio form. Just go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories every week. And now let's return to the impact caused by the courageous stand of this one player against the big league. As soon as they struck down the reserve clause, the Cassandras came out of the woodwork and there were loud lamentations and rending of garments across the land as the baseball owners, who never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity, proved themselves wrong again. They said this will mean that all the good players will go to the rich teams and it will be the end of competitive balance. They were 180 degrees wrong. Competitive balance immediately began to improve. The ensuing 1978-87 decade of baseball saw 10 different teams win the World Series, which had never happened before. And before 1990, not a single team had gone from being the worst in the league one season and being the first in the league the next season. But the Twins and the Braves did it in 91 and the Phillies in 93. So much for competitive balance. Kurt Flood came back briefly after his aborted trade, but his career was essentially over. It's rather nice that he played in St. Louis, not far from the courthouse dome. You can see it today right over the outfield fence from the new Bush Stadium, where the original Dred Scott case was settled. Dred Scott was the slave who had lived for a while in a free state and said that by virtue of having lived in a free state, he should be declared free. The Supreme Court under Justice Taney in 1857 tried to resolve America's racial dilemma and again made an awful hash of it, brought on the Civil War and catalyzed the career of Abraham Lincoln by saying no African-American has or ever shall have any rights that a white person is obligated to respect. Which is why when I wrote about Kurt Flood years ago, I referred to him as Dred Scott and Spikes. Because they both lost, but both sparked a movement that ultimately won, even if they never benefited from it. The outcome, which was that we are a market society. We believe in the freedom for capitalist acts between consenting adults, to use a phrase coined by the the late, great Robert Nozick. So the national pastime was suddenly and to its great discomfort, but its ultimate prosperity was made congruent with the national premise, which is that people should be free to contract with one another in cooperative ventures, even if it's called Major League Baseball. The biggest deal in baseball history finally went through today as the San Francisco Giants signed free agent outfielder Barry Bonds to a six-year, $43.75 million deal. Justin Verlander has signed a seven-year contract for $180 million. Leighton Kershaw has agreed to a new seven-year, $215 million contract. What Kurt Flood did was give players leverage. If you have no leverage, you have no 
power to compel owners to share a larger portion of the value that the players create. No one that I know of has ever bought a ticket to a ballpark to see an owner. Uh, they go to see the, the players. Now, I'm, I don't want to sound too Marxist here about the labor theory of value, but even allowing for the fact that the entrepreneurship and the scouting and all the rest and the marketing that goes into the management side of baseball does create value, still, most of the value is created by the players. Therefore, what the Dred Scott-Kurt Flood decision did was give the Major League Baseball players leverage just at a time no one could have seen this, when something else was going to happen that was going to make an enormous difference to salaries, and that is the explosive growth of local broadcast revenues. The era of baseball prosperity was just around the corner with cable television and super stations such as TBS, Ted Turner broadcasting his Braves, the WGN broadcasting the Cubs, which WGN for a while owned through the Tribune Company. So through serendipity, the explosive growth of money pouring into baseball because of new television audiences, baseball became invaluable programming, coincided with the fact that the players suddenly had the leverage to get a bigger piece of this growing pie. A piece that Kurt Flood would never benefit from. Missed the big paydays can't blame guys like Duke Snyder and Willie Mays and these others who, had they come along a generation later, would have been rich beyond the dreams of avarice. And Kurt's theoretical losses affected him in a very non-theoretical way. Uh, he left the country for a while. I think he was embittered, and I don't blame him. Uh, his, he had an embittering experience, and he moved, I believe, to Spain. Uh, before coming back and dying prematurely from cancer. Uh, I actually sp spoke at his, at his funeral among the speakers of me and Jesse Jackson, contrasting rhetorical styles to say no more. Uh, but uh, he could, Kurt Flood could be prickly and uh, good. Uh, Kurt Flood once said, I'm proud that God made my skin black. I wish he'd made it thicker. Uh, baseball in America are better off because he was a little bit thin-skinned. If only America knew it. Kurt Flood is one among the all-too-forgotten heroes that made America. It's an amazing thing, but understandable. Most people turn to sports and baseball as a pastime. They want the time to pass as a respite from the daily stuff and strife and technicalities of modern life. So they say, get, stop that nonsense. Don't talk about revenue sharing. Don't talk about luxury taxes. Don't talk about free agency. Don't talk about this, that, the other thing. Play ball. I can understand that. But it's too bad because there's a richness to the, if you will, the sociology of baseball that to the fan who's informed of it, finds that his enjoyment of the game has deepened. I then proceeded to make the great mistake of voicing the proposition that baseball is like a microcosm of life. 
Well, I resist that kind of writing about baseball. The baseball reminds me of my father, of summer days of the Federal Reserve Board or whatever. It's just, baseball's baseball. It's a tough, demanding craft played by grown men. And by the way, it's also dangerous. If you play 162 of these games in 183 days, you'll get the picture. This is not boys of summer. These are men at work. And they are tough guys at the very top of a very steep athletic pyramid and trying to stay there. So in that sense, it, it, to me, it's the ultimate meritocracy. After 162 games, you are your record. There's no dodging it. It's all there in black and white. And uh, this, that's why it requires a particular toughness of the sort that uh, Kurt Flood had in abundance. And great job, Alex. Superb job by George Will. They're not the boys of summer. They're the men of work. And it is work, and it's hard work. And Kurt Flood, well, he got athletes rewarded for their work, at least in baseball. Kurt Flood's story, a remarkable story, a story of courage and one man, one man alone, changing things. This is Our American Stories. stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show and we love the intersection of music and story and the story of a song and by the way you can go to our american network and hear all of our stories of a song this one is about a beach boy gem called good vibrations let's hear the guitars please is it possible for a song to be simultaneously revered and underappreciated if so Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys falls into this category. Okay, that's fine. Let's make it. Take one. Pal, let's go, man. Here we go. Play hard and strong all the way. Music critics have celebrated the song, voting it number one in Mojo's Top 100 Records of All Time and number six on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. The song has been cited as a forerunner to the Beatles' A Day in the Life in 1967, and Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody in 1975. Good Vibrations is composed by Brian Wilson with lyrics by Mike Love. Released on October 10, 1966, just five months after their revolutionary opus, Pet Sounds, the single was an immediate critical and commercial hit, 
topping record charts in several countries, including the U.S. and the U.K., Good Vibrations later became widely acclaimed as one of the finest and most important works of the rock era. Over 90 hours of tape was consumed during the dozen-plus sessions across four different studios. This process was reflected in the song's several dramatic shifts in key, texture, instrumentation, and mood. Good Vibrations was the costliest single ever recorded at the time of its release. Here's the story of Good Vibrations, beginning with music journalist and, as a side note, the man credited with giving Jimi Hendrix the idea of setting fire to his guitar, Keith Altham. Good Vibrations was just the, the, the perfect encapsulation of what he was doing with pet sounds, I suppose. It was a mixture of all those sounds and things that he had accumulated for pet sounds and put into a condensed version for a single. Here's Beach Boy, Bruce Johnston. I think if Good Vibrations had been on pet sounds, uh, we would probably own the galaxy by now. You know, I mean... What do you do after Good Vibrations, if the, and if, especially it's on the, if it's on that album? But uh, it didn't work out that way. Here's Brian Wilson. I managed to get Pet Sounds with Tony, and then I said to Tony, I'm going to write a song all about Good Vibrations. My mother told me when I was a kid that dogs pick up vibrations from people, and if they feel threatened, they bark. Yeah, I'm picking up good vibrations. Mike, Mike came up. I said, "This song's called Good Vibrations," and he goes, "I'm picking up good vibrations." He wrote that baseline. Here's Mike Love. Good vibrations was done in sections at different studios. It took me six weeks for to get, have it produced. Here's recording engineers Bruce Botnick and Mark Linnett. This is definitely Gold Star. Uh, is when it because when it makes the cut. I, I can definitely hear the sound of Sunset Sound on the drums. It's much drier and not as roomy. One, two, three, four. In this part, the, the cellos and the theremin are overdubbed. And Brian also pulled out a large portion of the, of the three-track. There's a piano in there that, that he pulled out as much as he could. And again, mixed it down to mono. And... And this is the same verse from Gold Star. Did he repeat the verse? Yeah, I believe and so. And made a copy? Yeah. And the choruses are definitely repeated. Yeah. And here's the piano. And a juice harp. That was an overdub. And finally, there was a composite of, uh, that became the actual track to Good Vibrations. And he gave it to me in the form of an acetate, which I was able to play. And uh, I actually dictated the uh, lyrics to Good Vibrations uh, on the way to the studio to my then wife, Suzanne. And uh, I. I wrote this poem, I love the colorful clothes she wears and the way the sunlight plays upon her hair, that kind of thing. And I came up with, I'm picking up good vibrations, she's giving me the excitations, to, to paraphrase the, the bass part, 
which is so it was i came up with the words and that hook and brian did the brilliant track so it was a true collaboration here's a and r executive at capitol records carl ingeman good vibration was a record that took him a long time to make in between uh, different albums and things like that and to me Good Vibrations is perhaps the greatest rock and roll record of all time. Well, the, the night we cut Good Vibrations, the, the guys had a really lot of fun, you know. They really liked it. They said, Brian, this is going to be a number one record. I, I love the colorful clothes Let's take a walk through this number one hit. The first verse is built around an ethereal descending chord progression in E-flat minor. I hear the sound of a gentle And then we hit the first chorus. The chorus starts in G-flat major, and then with each repetition, the chorus climbs upward, providing a counterpoint to the verse's descending chord progression. Then, we go back to the verse. Check out the bass line. Listen to how high it is. Softly smile, I know she must be Instead of just playing the root of the main chord in the song, the bass is actually creating a counter melody. At the time, hardly anyone was using bass lines in this way. I'm picking up after this verse, we return to the chorus, carried by a new instrument called an electrotheremin that inhabited the good vibrations and the Beach Boys' patented harmony. Then we hit the first of two interludes, or episodic digressions. This section is greeted with a sudden tape splice, which is a clear edit between two sessions that were recorded at different times in the studios. This part of the song might normally be called a bridge, but instead of cutting back to the chorus like a bridge might, we cut into the second part of the episodic digression. This tape splice is even more dramatic than the first. Just as we're floating through the air, a five-part harmony wakes us back up as we punch into the chorus. This chorus starts in the reverse direction, beginning in B-flat and working down back to where we started out in G-flat. series of harmonies, juddering cellos, and the electrotheremin carry us out. 
Vibrations was dubbed a pocket symphony, and its production elements and symphonic structures would be echoed in dozens of songs in the decades to come. So, whenever you're talking about the greats in rock, be sure to give Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys a little love. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and for anyone who thinks... The Beach Boys were lightweights. Well, think again after hearing that story. And by the way, listening to our story on multi-track recordings and the battle between the Beatles and the Beach Boys for production ascendance. And my goodness, it was the Beach Boys who affected the Beatles and not the other way around. And by the way, to hear our stories of a song, go to ouramericannetwork.org. There you will find the story of George on my mind, Light My Fire by the Doors, Jesus Take the Wheel, There Goes My Life, Why Me, My Lord by Chris Christopherson, and so many others. Combining always the arts of storytelling and music here on Our American Stories, the story of a song. 